Luke chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he went up into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Every valley should be filled and every mountain and hill should be made low and the crooked shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and likewise, whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water. And he who is as mightier than I who is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my, my, my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. This is the word of our Lord. You please be seated. Let's pray again together. Holy God, as we approach your holy word this morning, as we consider the ministry of John, herald to King Jesus, Lord, as we consider the, the ways that he told people to prepare for the coming king, Lord, we pray that you would help us to prepare for the coming king as he commanded people to prepare by repentance for the first incarnation of Jesus Christ, Lord, we must prepare as those who are awaiting your return. Lord, we pray that through the power of your Holy Spirit that you would grant us repentance, that you would grant us faith, you would grant us expectancy to look forward to your coming, Lord Jesus. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. The horsemen pressed on, and ere evening, they came to the crossroads and the great ring of trees, and all was silent. No sign of any enemy had been seen, no cry or call had been heard, no shaft had sped from a rock or thicket by the way. 
Yet ever as they went forward, they felt the watchfulness of the land increase. Tree and stone, blade and leaf were listening. The darkness had been dispelled and far away westward sunset was on the Vale of Anduin. And the white peaks of the mountains blushed in the blue air, but a shadow and gloom brooded upon the Ephel Duath. Then Aragorn set trumpeters at each of the four roads that ran to the ring of trees, and they blew a great fanfare, and the heralds cried aloud, The lords of Gondor have returned, and all this land that is theirs they take back. The hideous orc head that was set upon the carven figure was cast down and broken in pieces, and the old king's head was raised and set in its place once more, still crowned with white and golden flowers. And men labored to wash and pare away all the foul scrawls that orcs had put upon the stone. With these lines from J.R.R. Tolkien's Return of the King, Heralds announced the arrival of Aragorn to take his rightful place as High King of Gondor and Arnor. But before he was to reign, Aragorn must lead one final and fearful charge to the very gates of Mordor itself. Now, Tolkien wrote this to be an, an allegory, and, and as an allegory, it has some, some really clear parallels with the scriptures. Of course, as, a, as an allegory, you can only take it so far. Tolkien's, again, is a fictional tale. It describes the important role of heralds in declaring the arrival of the king who would take back what is his. Well, this morning we're going to hear from another herald announcing the arrival of another king who is going to take back what is his. Now, this herald held no trumpet. His voice was the only instrument used to prepare the way for the king. This is far, a far greater herald than any other herald that has ever existed in human history. Yet he pales in comparison to the greatness of the king. I'm speaking, of course, of John the Baptist, who prepared the way for Jesus Christ, the king of kings. This morning, we're going to see three scenes as John heralds the arrival of King Jesus. This passage shows us Jesus' place in world history and, more importantly, within redemption history. After 400 years of silence from heaven, God had sent the angel Gabriel to the aged Zechariah to tell him that his wife would conceive a child. His barren, aged wife would conceive a child, John, the forerunner for Jesus Christ. And soon after, God would send the angel once more, this time to, to Mary, to tell her that she too would miraculously conceive a child, though she was a virgin. The conception of John was miraculous, but the conception of Jesus was one of the most amazing miracles to ever have occurred. John's birth had been prophesied and promised in Isaiah 40, as we'll see this morning, and Malachi 3. Jesus' birth had been prophesied and promised throughout the whole Old Testament. The time of fulfillment has come. Prepare the way of the Lord. John the Baptist serves as a bridge figure. He is the last of the Old Testament prophets. Jesus himself will testify of John in Luke 7.28 that no one born of women is greater than John. But as we've already seen repeatedly through Luke's gospel account, John was great, but Jesus is greater. John the Baptist is an important figure, but his importance is in his ministry of preparation for Jesus. So again, there are three main sections in this passage. First of all, the proclamation of preparation in verses 1 to 6. Then the proclamation of repentance in verses 7 to 14. And then the proclamation of exaltation in verses 15 to 22. So first of all, verses 1 to 6, the proclamation of preparation. Luke begins by setting the context of John's ministry in the backdrop of, against the backdrop of world history. He mentions the name of, of seven figures, seven rulers in the ancient Near East. From Caesar, the, the most important and powerful human leader on the planet at the time, to two Jewish religious leaders. And virtually every man on this list is known for his wickedness. 
Tiberius Caesar, who assumed the position after the death of his stepfather Augustus in AD 14, ruled until AD 37. The historian Tacitus describes him as infamous, infamous for his cruelty. Though veiled in his debaucheries, he plunged into every wickedness and disgrace. When fear and shame being cast off, he simply indulged in his own evil inclinations. Pontius Pilate, who was governor of Judea from A.D. 26 to 36, who would impotently hand Jesus over to, the, to be crucified by the Romans out of fear of the Jews. Herod Antipas, son of Herod the Great, Tetrarch of Galilee, destroying his own marriage and his brother's through his immorality, and even worse, he imprisoned and would become responsible for the death of John the Baptist. Annas, high priest from A.D. 6 to 15, whose son Caiaphas had assumed the title in A.D. 18, but it seems he did not have the authority that his father carried out, yet both men worked together to hand Jesus over to the Romans for execution. It was into these times that God called John, that the word of God came to him, these words, the word of God came to him, is the way that Old Testament prophets are repeatedly said to have received their message. God is calling John to fulfill the ministry that God has prepared for him. He was to go about preaching, to go about baptizing, preparing the way for the ministry of Jesus Christ. In another link with the Old Testament prophets, John is identified as the son of Zechariah. And, and again and again, and virtually every time a prophet is introduced in the Old Testament, his father is named as well. So again, John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. Luke presents all of this detail to highlight the importance of the arrival of John on the scene. John, we've been told earlier, grew up in the desert. But now the time for his ministry had come, verse 3, and he went into all the region around Judea, so around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of of sins. And we're going to talk about baptism and repentance a little more later on, but, but for now I want us to consider this, this definition of repentance. Repentance is a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. John's, we're told, is a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John's, is a, John's baptism is a sign of repentance. And the message here is then that unless people repented, their sins would not be forgiven. So when someone was baptized by John, they, they were saying that they had submitted themselves to God's moral law and had sought forgiveness from God. It was a sign that they had repented and had sought and were seeking forgiveness through God. Again, repentance is essential for forgiveness. Jesus is going to testify at the end of Luke's gospel account in, in uh, Luke 24, verses 46 and 47. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. Now hear this, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. So again, we're going to be talking about repentance more later on, but, but many religions then and now include baptism as a cleansing ritual. In ancient Egyptian and ancient Babylon religions and in Islam, they all practice a form of baptism. Baptistries have been dis discovered in the Essene ruins at Qumran near the Dead Sea. In Judaism, Ritual washing was required if somebody, someone had become ceremonially unclean for various reasons. Also, Jews practiced proselyte baptism, where if a Gentile was to seek conversion to Judaism, they would have to be ritually cleansed of their gentility. But John's baptism was unique to him as part of his prophetic office. It wasn't the washing of a separatist community like in Qumran or the rite of initiation like in Judaism, but a baptism of repentance. John's baptism is even distinct from Jesus' baptism, from baptism in Jesus' name. In John's baptism, the recognition of one's need for repentance prepares the way in response to Jesus later. 
please turn with me in your Bible to Luke, um, sorry, to Acts chapter, Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19 and verses 1 to 4. Look here at the end of verse 1 where we read that, that Paul was in Ephesus and he found some disciples. He found some disciples. And they were baptized into John's baptism. Look at that in verse 3. And so Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. And then they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So, so they needed a subsequent baptism, a different baptism from the one that they had received through John. The baptism that, that signifies our union with, with Christ and his life and his death and his resurrection. And again, they were disciples. They were believers in Jesus, but they didn't know about baptism in Jesus. And we see here as well, they didn't even understand about the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about this a little, a little bit later on too. So Jesus' baptism and John's baptism are distinct, but John's baptism, baptism is not unrelated to Jesus. It was to prepare people for the arrival of Jesus. So this is a baptism of forgiveness, of sins. Yet, and this is, is vitally important. Baptism does not save you. Baptism does not save you. Neither does repentance. We believe in works-based salvation. You are saved by works. However, you cannot be saved by your works. You cannot earn forgiveness by anything you do. Forgiveness comes through faith in what Christ has done for you. Salvation comes through Christ's works. Only the blood of Jesus Christ can wash away your sins. So John's message is not clean yourself up to receive the Messiah. It's seek cleansing through the Messiah who is to come. Luke does not emphasize John's baptism at all. He mentions it, but it's not Luke's main point. He doesn't emphasize John's baptism, but John's message. Malachi had prophesied in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. God promised to send his messenger before his arrival, before the Lord came, and John is that messenger. The angel Gabriel prophesied in Luke 1, verses 16 to 18, that John would go before the Lord to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the, the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready a people for the Lord prepared. John's father, Zechariah, prophesied in Luke 1, verses 76 to 78a, and you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, and you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. So John's message was a proclamation of preparation. So now John applies the prophecy of Isaiah, verses 40. Uh, for chapter 40 verses 3 to 5 to himself here in verses uh, in Luke 3 verses 4 to 6 the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his paths straight all four gospel accounts include this testimony but only Luke includes the next two verses from Isaiah 40 verses 4 and 5 Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low, and the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. So, so this message is more important than the messenger. John is merely a voice. So John is, is a voice Preparing, saying, prepare the way for Jesus Christ, the promised one who would bring salvation. J.C. Ryle wrote that difficulties and obstacles as great as mountains and valleys in the way of the king's march will go down before the progress of Christ's, of Christ's gospel. 
The picture here is of, of those who would, would come before a king and make sure there was no obstacles in the way. John is doing road work on the highway of God, preparing a people humbled and repentant for the coming king. Now this last part of the quotation from Isaiah 40, verse 6, is that all flesh shall see the salvation of God fits Luke's purpose of highlighting the universality of the gospel, that all nations are included in the promise. There's also a future sense in which this has not yet been fully fulfilled. In Psalm 98, verses 2 and 3, that the Lord has made known his salvation. He has revealed his righteousness in the sight of the nations. He has remembered his steadfast love and faithfulness to the house of Israel. All the ends of the earth have seen the salvation of our God. So in this future sense, everyone will see the salvation of our God. Everyone will see him, but not everyone will be saved. Revelation 1.7 One day, every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. So yes, at the coming time, everyone will see the Lord's salvation. And for the elect, they will go to, to eternal life with Christ. But for the unregenerate, those who have not turned away from their sin and put their faith in Jesus, those, those who have not repented and trusted in Him, they will go to everlasting torment in the lake of fire. One day, you will see Jesus. For most of us, it will be a day of rejoicing. A day of rejoicing like no other. You will see your Savior face to face. But if you had not repented of your sin, if you'd not put your faith in him, you won't see your savior. You will see your judge. In verses 7 to 14, we see the proclamation of repentance. Now we begin to hear the content of John's message. And first he focuses on repentance. Luke uses the noun repentance and the verb to repent more often than, than all three of the other gospel accounts put together. This is a very important theme in, John's gospel, in, in Luke's gospel. Crowds are gathered before John the Baptist to hear him preach. Matthew only describes the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John refers to hearers, but Luke mentions crowds. This message was for the multitude. Matthew 3, verses 7 to 10 is recorded almost identically, but it applies it directly to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. John's message was of salvation for those who repented and condemnation for those who didn't. He calls them a brood of vipers. They are the seed of the serpent from Galatians 3.15 who are at war with the seed of the woman. They will be defeated along with the head snake as his head is crushed. In Australia, as, as massive bushfires approached, snakes slithered out of their holes in the ground in a fruitless attempt to flee the flames. And their scorched skeletons are all that remain. Judgment is coming. An inferno is coming. God's final judgment is coming. Now there are times to be harsh in an attempt to wake people from their plight. And for John, this was one of those times. He warns the people to bear fruits in keeping with repentance. True repentance is revealed in a life that is characterized by obedience to God. Now the verb that is used here is in the present tense. This is a, a continual act. This is not, not a one-off. Keep on producing fruit with repentance, a fruit of repentance. 1 John 3 verses 7 and 8 is parallel. Whoever practices righteousness, this is actually the same verb, whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. Is your life characterized by righteousness? Or is your life characterized by sin? Now, yes, we all sin in many ways. But is your life characterized by obedience to Christ and growth in the same? Is your life characterized by by love for God and love for your neighbors and growth in that? It is only those who bear fruit in keeping with repentance who are truly saved. They're not saved again by their repentance, but their repentance reveals the fact that they are saved. Please turn with me in your Bible to 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We'll look at verses 10 and 11. Back in verse 9, Paul says that, that he rejoices not because the Corinthians were grieved, but because they were grieved into repenting. For they felt a godly grief so that they suffered no loss through, through his ministry. Then look at verse 10. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Thomas Watson wrote in his excellent book, The Doctrine of Repentance, either sin must drown in tears of repentance or the soul must burn in hell. But grief alone is not repentance. Repentance is not feeling bad. Repentance is not crying. You can feel bad and you can cry about your sin, but be no more repentant than a snake. There are two kinds of grief that Paul talks about here in in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10. There is worldly grief that leads to death and godly grief that leads to repentance. In verse 11, Paul outlines what repentance looks like. Paraphrasing is there's an eagerness to make it right. There's a hatred for sin. There's there's godly fear. There is zeal for righteousness and so on. That's what repentance looks like. Thomas Watson helpfully describes repentance as a grace of God's spirit whereby a sinner is inwardly humbled and visibly reformed. Again, it's a, a change of heart that leads to a change of behavior. And Watson went on for further application. He says, we know that repentance is a spiritual medicine made up of six special ingredients. Sight of sin. Sorrow for sin. Confession of sin. Shame for sin. Hatred of sin. And turning from sin. And he says, if, if, if any one of those ingredients is lacking, there, there is no power in this medicine. But when all these things are there, it's evidence of the fact that the Holy Spirit has given you the gift of repentance. The Puritans were referred to as repenters. Their lives were were characterized by continual repentance. Again, these things were all there. They they saw their sin. They grieved over their sin. They they confessed their sin to God and any people whom they they had to complain, they had sinned against. They they felt shame for their sin. They felt hatred of their sin and they turned from their sin. Do do these things characterize your life? Would somebody look at you and say, you are a repenter? If that's true of you, then then that's akin to saying that, that you are a Christian. Well, John goes on to tell the list, his listeners not to rely on their lineage from Abraham. Jews commonly felt that, that God would bless them because of Abraham's merits. And while that, that is true in a, in a sense, in a, in a physical sense, that there were blessings for Israel as a nation because of God's promises to Abraham, John declares that God can raise up children for Abraham, for Abraham from stones. There is no value in salvation for, for having a heritage of uh, having Abraham as your forebear. All people stand before God as individuals. His merits could not save anyone, not even himself. All people need to rely on the merits 
of Christ. I think there's some people who view church membership in this way. But friends, church membership can't save you any more than being a descendant of Abraham can save you. God will not ask you for your membership forms. The question is not whether you are a part of Providence Baptist Church, but whether you have a part in Christ. In verse 9, John gives a second warning of coming judgment. It's at the door. Jesus had said in the Sermon on the Mount that you will know them by their fruit in uh, Matthew 7, verses 16 and 20. But, but John is saying here that the, that the axe is going to cut down those trees who do not bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And the axe is already poised and ready to strike. Fruitless trees will be cut down and cast into the fire. Are you a fruitless tree? Are you a fruitless tree? Now, there are all types of, of fruits that are described in the scriptures, but, but Galatians 5 talks about it most, most clearly and succinctly that the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control that are the, the fruit singular of the Spirit that is in contradistinction to the works of the flesh. I've used this illustration before, but, but I remember my pastor in Louisville, Ryan Fullerton, talking about a peach tree that he had in his yard. And he said if he was to go out there in early June and, and look at the tree and, and see these, these little, the tree covered with these little nubs of peaches, fruit that was not yet mature, he wouldn't, he wouldn't take an axe and cut down the tree. He would say there's fruit there. There's fruit. There's, there, there is evidence of life and productivity in this tree. But he was, if he was to come back in July, in, in peach season, and to see that, that, that all that was there were these, still, these, these little nubs that was not bearing true fruit, it would be a fruitless tree and would need to be cut down. So the question for you is, is are you producing the fruit of the Spirit? Are you producing fruit in keeping with repentance? Again, it's not, is, is, you, is your fruit perfect? Are you, are you perfectly exhibiting the fruit of the Spirit in, in multiple ways? But, but as I mentioned a moment ago, this is the way that, that, um, that it's, des it's described in, by Paul in Galatians 5. It's not the fruits of the Spirit. It's the fruit of the Spirit singular. This isn't multiple choice. It's a true Christian will display to some measure the fruit of the Spirit. Again, maybe not perfectly mature, but, but it will be there in the life of the true believer. While John was teaching, he was rejected by the Jewish leaders. Luke tells us that in Luke 7.30. But others asked questions. The crowd asked, what then shall we do? It seems that the Spirit was working in hearts. And they, were responded, they responded with, with, with conviction over their sin. J.C. Ross said that a man can faithfully preach the gospel so that people hear, but he cannot make their consciences accept it. Christ, the head of the church, can alone do this by the power of the Holy Spirit. As powerful a preacher as John the Baptist was, he could not create repentance in the hearts of his hearers. He was dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. I am dependent on the work of the Holy Spirit. As I'm aware of my many failings and my many weaknesses, it's only the Lord. I pray earnestly for each one of you that you will hear the word of God. And they will respond in repentance and faith for the glory of God. Well, again, these people were asking John, what should we do? Now, Luke is the only gospel writer who gives us these details describing this interaction. Leon Morris points out that John's answers are simple 
and practical. They reveal a recognition that each calling in life has its own temptations and that it is the mark of the truly repentant to resist them. But Morris continues, John's answers lack the depth of insight that marked Jesus' teaching. They don't go past individual acts. Whereas Jesus called for complete surrender of the soul to God. But as we consider here John's answers, again, this is not cleaning yourself up to receive the Messiah. It's seeking cleansing through the Messiah. Though John's baptism, as mentioned earlier, is distinct from Christian baptism, it also points to the fact that what happens in the heart. And John, notice, does not tell them to go to the temple and offer sacrifice. He tells them to love. He points out practical ways that they can love their neighbor as themselves. And so the, the first answer is, the first two answers are general. He says, if, if you have a spare tunic, give him to, give your spare tunic to the one who doesn't have one. Now, a tunic was an, an, uh, an undergarment that was worn next to the skin. It went from the, the shoulders to, to midway down the thighs, and it, it, was, it would, would keep someone warm. It was the idea that if, if you have extra, I don't think anybody here is wearing a tunic this morning. But, but what do you have that's extra? What, what do you have that you can actually, where you can help somebody else? Again, like we talked about last week, this is, this is not the social gospel. This is not trying to, to save souls just by doing good things. It's, it's doing good things because the gospel has saved us and because we, we love God and we love our neighbor. John's second answer is, is parallel to the first. He says, if, 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 if you have food, give your extra food to the one who has none. Are, are there practical ways that, that, you can be, that you can be reaching out and serving those around you, especially in our church family? Are you aware of other needs in the church family? And are, are you seeking opportunities to, to give to those who are in need? And I believe it extends even to those who are, are, those who are, are truly homeless. The scriptures say that if a man is, is, is not willing to work, he should not eat. And so it's not just about giving people money out on the street. This is about, about operating in wisdom, but also operating in love as the fruit of repentance. Well, next Tax collectors are asking them what they should, what they're asking John what they should do. Well, tax collectors are, are probably not very popular in, in our culture either, but, but in that time, tax collectors were among the most hated members of Jewish society. Romans, when they, when they had a, a country or nation that they'd conquered, they, they, would, um, they would farm out tax rights to nationals of that country. They'd farm them out to the highest bidder. And then the tax collector would pay Rome for the, the, the amount he bid, but then would collect more than he, he would collect more than he had paid in order to, to make a profit, sometimes an exorbitant profit. And you can understand why other Jews living in that culture would have viewed a tax collector in that context as a traitor. But John doesn't tell them to give up their trade. Rather, he tells them to conduct themselves with fairness and honesty. So the fruit of repentance here would mean treating their fellow citizens as they would want to be treated themselves. Again, with fairness and honesty. Likewise, soldiers ask John specifically what they should do. And if, if tax collectors were amongst the most hated members of Jewish society, then these soldiers were a close second. Likely, this refers to Jewish soldiers, probably those who provided muscle for the tax collectors. And again, the command is to neighbor love. Don't extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation. The, the second term that's translated here, false accusation, is interesting. The term originally meant shake figs. It came to, later to refer to a false accusation or fraud. That's how it's translated as fraud in Luke 19.8. John is saying here, don't put a shakedown on anyone. Like mobsters who make businesses pay for protection, but the, the protection that the business owners need is from the mobsters who are demanding it. 
Rather, John tells soldiers to be content. Again, John does not tell them to stop soldiering, but to soldier with integrity. I wonder if you are taking advantage of others in any way by your employment. Are you content with your wages? Or are you so eager to make an extra buck that you will compromise your integrity to get it? Well, that's not the fruit of repentance. That's not love that comes from the heart of someone who's been saved by Christ. But whether it's tax collectors or soldiers, they could not atone for their sins by behaving rightly. And neither can you. Even if you were to live a life of perfect obedience for the rest of your life, sad news for you, you're not going to. But even if you could, it's not good enough. Even perfection would leave you with the problem of sins you have previously committed. And your individual sins would testify to the fact, if you were relying on your own righteousness, that you were still dead in your trespasses and sins. Because for the unbeliever, all of life is sin. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God. So a change in behavior, fruit in keeping with repentance, reveals that repentance is real. It also reveals that faith is real. James 2.18, I will show you my faith by my works. Well, finally, John gets to the, the, really the, the high point of his message. It's the, the high point of this passage. In verses 15 to 22, we have the proclamation of exaltation. Again, Luke's emphasis is on John's message. And now this message comes to a crescendo. As he moves from preaching about preparation for Christ and repentance before the coming of Christ to direct preaching about Christ. And it comes in response to a question. You see, at that time, there was a, a high level of expectation for the coming of the Messiah. People were looking eagerly for the Messiah. And, and the Jews expected that the Messiah would be one who was righteous and who proclaimed truth. Well, John's message and John's character led people to wonder whether he was the Messiah. Friends, there was a high level of expectation for the coming of Christ in the visible church. But sadly, now, like then, in many cases, this expectation is wound up with, with all kinds of, of false ideas as to who Christ is and what his coming will be like. But whether that be the case, may we walk in righteousness. May we proclaim the truth. Now, of course, people are not going to think you're the Messiah. At least I hope not. But may we all be wise and loving in our conversation and in our actions so that people will ask questions in which Jesus is the answer. Now, only Luke mentions this interaction, but it, it fits again this theme that we've, we've seen already re repeatedly in, in Luke's gospel account, that, that John is great, but Jesus is greater. And John identifies five ways that Jesus is greater. His might, his worth, his baptism, his salvation, and his judgment. So first of all, his might. John says in verse 16, I baptize you with water, but he was coming, but he was mightier than I who was coming. Again, we're going to focus on this baptism in a, minute, in a moment again, but, <clears throat> but the Messiah will be mightier than John. Now, there's no doubt that John had a mighty ministry. These people were coming to repentance under his ministry through the power of the Holy Spirit. But Jesus is omnipotent. I spoke about this last week from, from Psalm 139, that, that Jesus, the, the Son of God incarnate, is all-powerful. He is the Lord who created all things and holds them together by the word of his power. Colossians 1, 16 and 17. 
and throughout the rest of Luke's gospel account, we're going to witness Jesus' power. Power to heal the sick. Power to cast out demons. Power to control the weather. Power to raise the dead. Power to save sinners. John was empowered by the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but God especially anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit and with power, Acts 10, 38. So, Jesus is greater in John than his, in his might, but Jesus is also greater than John in his worth. John says that, that I'm not even worthy to untie the, the strap of, of his sandal. Now, under Jewish law, a Hebrew slave wasn't required to, to untie the strap of their, their master's sandals. That, that task was viewed as too menial. And so John is saying that he is not even worthy to undertake the most menial of tasks before the Lord. Now, this is obviously humility on John's part before the greatness of Jesus, but it's the only rational response. Humility is the, is the only sane response before the greatness of Jesus. As great as John is, Jesus is much, much greater. We all must exalt Christ. The faithful minister must exalt Christ. Remember my pastor warning me carefully in seminary. He said, you cannot exalt Christ and yourself at the same time. I love the quote that the Apostle John includes in John 3.30. He must increase, but I must decrease. Do, do you view that that, that, that this is the reality for you, that, that in all parts of your life, that, that Jesus must increase and that you must decrease? This, this is part of the fruit of repentance in the life of the believer, that, that, that Christ is increasingly glorified you because, in you because, because you are predestined not just for salvation, but also for sanctification. You are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, Romans 8, 29. So you could be confident that if you are here as a believer, if you are truly born again, that throughout the course of your life, gradually, step by step, day by day, you will increasingly glorify God. Understanding that Jesus is worthy. That He alone, God alone is worthy of all our praise, of all our adoration, of every moment of our lives. So Jesus is greater in, than John in his, uh, in his might, in his worth, and also in his baptism. John said that he baptized with water, but the Messiah will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Again from Acts 19.4, Paul said John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who is to come after him, that is Jesus. Again, Luke doesn't emphasize John's baptism, but John's message. In a moment, we're going to see that, that Luke doesn't even say directly that John is the one who baptized Jesus. John brought a baptism of repentance, but Jesus brings a baptism through the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit and with fires, referring to, to salvation and judgment. Daryl Bach says that his baptism is nothing, John's baptism is nothing compared to the baptism that the mightier one brings. So John's baptism is a prophetic eschatological warning that is a baptism of promise that looks toward the greater baptism of the Spirit. It points forward to the cleansing of those who respond to the Messiah's offer with faith. So now with these, these two final elements, we, we see here that this baptism that Jesus brings provides is greater because it brings salvation and it brings judgment. First of all, salvation. John here uses the metaphor of a winnowing fork. And in that, that era, there was, there was a, a fork on the, on the threshing floor where the, the, the winnower would throw the, the grain up in the air. And then the wind would, would take the, the chaff and blow it away, but the, the grain that they were looking for would fall straight to the ground. And that, that grain would be, would be carefully collected and, and gathered into the barn. Now this, of course, points to our salvation. 
of our being gathered together with Jesus for all eternity. And so John is saying that Jesus is greater, that John merely proclaimed it. John merely proclaimed salvation, but Jesus delivered salvation through the work of the Holy Spirit in the hearts of the elect. Well, the fifth way we see that Jesus is greater than John is, is through his judgment. There's the other half of, the, of that metaphor, that the wind would blow the worthless chaff off, where it would be burnt with unquenchable fire. The eternal wrath of the holy and just judge. Again, John merely proclaims it. But Jesus would deliver it. He would deliver his judgment at his return. So in every way, Jesus is greater than John. But until that time, until that, that final judgment, the church is a mixed body. That's how Augustine described it, of a mixed body of, of, of tares and wheat, of, 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 weeds, of weeds and wheat, or of, of, in this analogy of using, of, there's chaff that's still there along with the wheat. There's unbelievers and there are believers side by side together until the final judgment. There are believers and there are unbelievers here this morning. And until that, 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 time, that coming time, until the return of Christ, it won't be obvious. But there are times that if you walk with someone, if you, as you fellowship with someone, you will, again, you will see that they're keeping fruit, they're bearing fruit and keeping with repentance, and you, they will testify in their lives that they are truly saved. We don't have x-ray vision to look into people's hearts to see who, who's saved and who's not, but, but it's our responsibility. This is, this is part of what we believe as Baptists, that the, the church is made up of believers. The biggest distinction between, between Baptists or Credo-Baptists and Pado-Baptists is, is, is not who is baptized. It's actually who is part of the church. And so as Baptists, we believe that, that the church is made up of believers. And, and this is what church discipline does. Is it, it, when, when it becomes apparent through, through a lack of repentance in someone's life that they are truly an unbeliever, then with, with the authority that, that has been granted to us, we will excommunicate the person. We will say that, that you are not able to partake of the Lord's Supper because of your lack of repentance. And that this is part of soul care. It might sound harsh, but this is, this is how your soul can be cared for. And there are times when the, when the person through that process, they will come to repentance and it will, it will become evident that this this act of church discipline was actually used of God to bring them to repentance and so then prove that they are truly saved. But we're told that, in verse 18, that with many exhortations, many other exhortations, John preached good news to the people. Now that message might not have seemed like good news for the chaff, but for the wheat, it's good news. It is great news. The badness of the bad news makes the goodness of the good news that much better. Now, Luke doesn't record for us here all the good news that, that John proclaims. But I'm reminded of 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, a fragrance of death to, from death to death, to the other, a fragrance from life to life. In your interactions with people in the church and, and in the community, understand, brothers and sisters, that you are the aroma of Christ. Paul goes on to say there that, that who is sufficient for these things? But praise God that his sufficiency, our sufficiency, comes from God. So because of the Holy Spirit's work in your heart, you are the aroma of Christ. Again, as you bear fruit in keeping with repentance, as you walk in, in love and righteousness, as you proclaim the truth, you are showing yourself to be a disciple of Christ. And you are the aroma of Christ. Some people are going to love you for it because you smell like life. 
but other people are going to hate you for it because to them you smell like death, like their death. In verses 19 and 20, we see an example of John's, a further example of John's fearlessness as a preacher of righteousness, where he rebukes Herod the Tetrarch, who'd, who he'd referred to, Luke had referred to in verse 1, for marrying his brother's wife. We're told for all the other evil things that he had done. So not only had Herod destroyed his own marriage through adultery, but he had also destroyed his brother's marriage. And he also married a close relative, contrary to the ceremonial law from Leviticus, the cleanliness laws from cleanliness laws from verses Leviticus eighteen sixteen and John twenty twenty one. So Herod was a wicked man and and did many wicked things. But the most wicked thing that he did was have John imprisoned and killed. See that at the end of verse twenty. Now, Luke is, is not here writing chronologically because John did continue to minister parallel to Jesus for in the early part of Jesus' ministry. But Luke here is, is as the one who's put together the, these accounts for, for writing this, this letter to Theophilus, what, he's, what he wants to do here is he wants, he wants to show that, that John the Baptist and his purpose was to point to Jesus. But, but his, his main and only purpose really was to point to Jesus and then having done that, he's now, Luke is now moving on to focus on the life of Jesus. And he's going to do so for the rest of his gospel account. So Luke doesn't include the details that we see uh, about in um, Matthew and Mark about with Salome, Herod, um, Herod's um, stepdaughter. And, and the, the wickedness that went on there that led to John the Baptist's beheading. Luke only mentions in Luke 9, verses 7 to 9, that, that John had been beheaded in prison. And that was the reward in this life for John's faithful ministry. He was imprisoned. From Josephus, we learn that he was, he was imprisoned in the fortress Mercurius near the Dead Sea, where he would eventually be beheaded. This was the Lord's plan for John. Now, John lived his life not seeking a reward in this life. John lived his life seeking the reward of eternal life. This is also the Lord's plan for Lawan Adimi, the pastor who was beheaded by Boko Haram terrorists this week in Nigeria. As we prayed for him last week that he would be delivered, and God had another plan. And for, for Pastor Andimi, he was it was a better plan. Because he's gone to be with Christ for all eternity. We pray for his family. We pray for his, his loved ones who are, who are left behind. But again, he is, as he declared in a video that was sent out days prior to his death, that he was at peace with death because Jesus is still alive. That was his hope. That was John the Baptist's hope. Is that your hope? That Jesus is still alive. Because if, if your hope is in a Savior who has defeated death, then you do not need to fear anything. We talked about this last week as well, that you do not need to fear him who could destroy both soul and body, rather to fear him who could destroy both soul and body in hell. So to fear him who could destroy the body, we don't need to fear that person. We fear God who could destroy both soul and body in hell. Sin is ugly, and the unrepentant will reject the warning. Unrepentant sinners will try to silence the messenger. If you speak out against someone's sin, the person will either repent or try to silence you. Now, they may not try to assassinate you literally, but they will try to assassinate your character through gossip and slander. But with that, with the end of verse 20, we, we reach the end of John the Baptist's ministry. Remember the early accounts of, of, the, of his birth and the birth of Jesus. We've seen how they had, they'd, they'd been parallel, side by side, many, many comparisons, many things that were the same. But at every point, Jesus was greater. And we see this again as, as John now fades into the background and Jesus takes the center stage as we transition here into 
the baptism of Jesus. Notice it says when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also been baptized, it doesn't even mention John's name. He has, he has completed what he was supposed to do. John, Luke has said pretty much everything he needs to say about, about John. This account is about Jesus. John's role was as a herald in, and in relationship to Jesus. But this event here, the baptism of Jesus, is really one of the most Christologically important events in the whole gospel account. And we'd seen how John had been, been testifying to Jesus. Now the rest of the Godhead will testify to Jesus. Now we don't have a mere man, as great as a man as, as John was, testifying to Jesus. Now we have God the Holy Spirit and God the Father testifying to Jesus. The message is that Jesus comes in the power and authority of Almighty God. Luke is emphasizing the fact that this baptism signifies that Jesus is the coming one who John had been proclaiming and would bring in this greater baptism. Now Luke doesn't draw this out, but, but elsewhere we read that, that, um, that, Jesus, that John questioned Jesus baptizing him and that that Jesus said it must be to fulfill all righteousness. So in other words, that, that while Jesus is eternal God, in his humanity, not only did he have to suffer for our sins, but he also had to fulfill the law for us in our place as part of his active obedience in order to achieve salvation for us. So his active obedience to the law was required in order that we could be saved. And part of that requirement is for baptism. We're commanded to be baptized as believers. To repent and be baptized, to follow in the footsteps of Jesus. Now Luke's is the only gospel writer who mentions that Jesus is praying when the, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. Luke has a major focus on prayer. It's another one of the key themes in his gospel account, as we'll see in the coming weeks. But the opening of heaven and the descent of the Holy Spirit, as Luke uses the term in bodily form, shows that there was an objective reality. This wasn't just a vision. This actually happened. And Matthew and Mark tell us that Jesus and John both saw it. So, so the Holy Spirit is coming upon Jesus as the seal of his ministry and as the one who would empower his ministry then we also have the Father's testimony. With these, these three elements where he says, you are my beloved Son. With you, I am well pleased. He's declaring that Jesus is the Son. He's the Son of God. That he's beloved and that he's, he's well pleased. This is, this is the greatest testimony of Jesus that we see in the scriptures anywhere. It's echoed in the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9 verses in verses uh, in Luke 9, 28 to 36. The Father makes the same testimony and adds that you must listen to him. These parallel Psalm, Psalm 2, 7, I will tell the, the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Jesus is the royal son. Isaiah 42, 1. Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights, I put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. What a remarkable event. The whole of the Trinity is there present at the baptism of Jesus. He's about, about to undertake his ministry. This divine confirmation that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. So John came as a herald of the king. Again, Luke will testify in Luke 7, 28 that no one, born, no one born of woman is greater than John. John was great, but Jesus is greater. Jesus Christ came to take back what is his. Jesus Christ came to defeat the world, the flesh, and the devil for you. For you, brothers and sisters. Your three greatest enemies have been defeated by the King of Kings. Throughout 
John's, or Luke's gospel account, we'll see this war that the seed of the woman is conducting against the seed of the serpent. And it all points towards Jesus' final and fearsome charge to crush the head of the serpent. He will charge straight into the heart of the enemy to defeat death itself for you and for me and for all of God's people for all time. Let's pray again together. Triune God, what a glorious gospel you have decreed. What a glorious salvation you have achieved for us. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working in concert, perfectly united, one mind and one will, working together to achieve the salvation of your elect for the glory of your name. Lord, help us, we pray, as your people who are called by your name, to walk in repentance and faith, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance, that your name might be glorified in us, that we will prove ourselves to be your sons and your daughters, so that we'll have opportunity to proclaim the glories of Christ, that your name might be exalted in and through us. Amen.